ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. If you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by going to seansrussiablog.org. In the 1970s and 80s, Soviet reformers looked around the world for models on how to reform the Soviet economy. They examined Eastern Europe, the West, Japan, and South Korea. All of them provided lessons, both positive and negative. But China and the reforms of Deng Xiaoping fascinated Soviet reformers the most. Could have the Soviet economy been saved by adopting the Chinese example? Chris Miller's new book, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, seeks to answer this very question. What lessons did China provide to the Soviet Union? And was the Chinese model even applicable to the Soviet context? I turned to Chris Miller for some answers. Chris Miller is the Associate Director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy at Yale University. He has previously served as a lecturer at the New Economic School in Moscow, a visiting researcher at the Carnegie Moscow Center, and a research associate at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR, published by University of North Carolina Press. Here's Chris Miller. So you open your book, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, with Mikhail Gorbachev's visit to China in May 1989, which happened to occur a few weeks before the Chinese military crushed the Tiananmen Square protests. Why do you open your story with Gorbachev in China? Well, I think the, the history of Gorbachev's visit to China in May uh, 89 is a really interesting window to how different we thought things looked at that point as compared to just two or three years later. You know, it's really 1989, 1990, 1991, where uh, China and the Soviet Union diverge in a way that both people in the West and also people in the Soviet Union and China thought that those two countries were on a somewhat similar path uh, throughout much of the 1980s. By the mid-1990s, they looked like they were in totally different places. And it was in a, a pretty short period and to the surprise of many people that they ended up uh, so divergently when they looked to be uh, in some ways so similar just several years earlier. So you you seek to offer in your in your book a new interpretation of perestroika. So how has it been understood and what new look are you trying to bring to it? Well, there are two main kind of schools of thought in looking at perestroika traditionally. One is on kind of the left end of the political spectrum, which looks at the pace of economic reforms and argues that they happened too rapidly or they were too aggressively implemented. And as a result, you kind of got bad economic outcomes from that, that heightened inequality, that reduced economic output. Um, and that was one school of thought. And there's a second school of thought on the right end of the political spectrum, which says that the problems that the Soviet Union and post-Soviet countries faced was not that economic reforms happened too rapidly or too uh, dis in such a in too disorganized a manner, but rather that there wasn't enough centralized political authority to push through coherent reforms. And had you had a more kind of a strong fist, being able to kind of push down popular popular dissent and, and push through unpopular reforms, you would have had better outcomes. So sort of the Pinochet uh, model. And, and both of those arguments are are made with reference to China. So on the left, the argument is that China does more gradual, piecemeal reforms that have better outcomes. 
On the right, the argument is that China on Tiananmen Square was able to show that it was willing to keep decisive authority in the hands of the party and as a result had uh, more sensible policymaking. And one of the things that I was uh, surprised to find in the Soviet archives when I started doing my research there several years ago was the extent to which many of the intellectuals, the economists, um, policy advisors who were giving Gorbachev advice as he was devising perestroika were actually looking at China as a potential model for what the Soviet Union could do. Uh, and that suggested to me that both of these accounts that we've received on the left and on the right uh, were missing something important about what was inspiring perestroika and then what went wrong in the implementation. Well, let's start at the once people in the Soviet Union, intellectuals and policymakers start thinking about reforming the Soviet Union. So what what is driving the interest and the thinking about and the reform of the Soviet economy? There, there are two main schools of thought that are present um, from the at least in the 1970s, perhaps even earlier, all the way up through 1985 when Gorbachev takes power and begins um, trying to implement some changes. One school of thought argues that the problem that the Soviet Union faces in terms of its declining economic growth rates is fundamentally a problem of capital investment. And here the argument is that if you just increase investment in new technology, increase investment in industry, you'll get higher output. Uh, and indeed, that's a, a, a kind of analysis that's, that was been... Or that, seem to have been at least verified by Soviet history that when you had this incredible investment surge of Stalin, you got rapid growth, and then as investment declined and the economy shifted towards consumption during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, growth slowed. So that was kind of one school of thought. The second was that actually you needed some sort of mechanism for making investment more efficient. And this was kind of more on the, you might call it the liberal end of the spectrum, the, the terminology is complicated. And this argument was that the problem wasn't that the Soviet Union was investing too little, it's that it was investing in ways that weren't actually correlated with better economic results. And Gorbachev himself saw some merit in both, but he leaned fairly heavily towards the second school of thought, which is to say that you needed to find some sort of mechanism for making investment efficient. And the the kind of consensus among scholars who were on that side of the debate was that the best way to do that was to adopt some sort of market incentive mechanisms, a way to uh, combine markets and socialism in the Soviet context. And what about the, the the intellectual tradition of this? Because, you know, in the 1920s, we have something similar where you have this combination of, you know, socialism, the commanding heights, but also a market economy. And that, of course, is done out of necessity. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a lot of writing coming out of, say, Bukhara and stuff about this. Um, and then even in the Soviet period, I think it's beginning... In the 60s and into the 70s, you have a lot of intellectuals and economists who are in conversation with some tendencies in Eastern Europe about ways to liberalize, for lack of a better term, the economy. So can you speak about the tra intellectual tradition in the Soviet Union of, of this thinking? You're absolutely right that NAP plays a big role. That's the movement in the 20s to find a way of combining markets and, and uh, state socialism. And particularly for Gorbachev, who believed that Lenin uh, was sort of the good guy in Soviet history and Stalin was the bad guy, the idea of resuscitating a Leninist economic policy was quite appealing. One of the challenges, though, is that it was seen um, across the Soviet political system that NEP might have some interesting lessons, but that it was too far removed from the realities of the 1980s economy to give any sort of concrete 
recommendations. So the Soviets had to look elsewhere for more specific ideas. And, and you're absolutely right that, especially in the 1970s, uh, there were a lot of economists and intellectuals who were looking towards Eastern Europe, so countries such as Hungary, Yugoslavia, which were much more aggressive in using market incentives and market mechanisms within a socialist political context. And during the 1970s, those experiments in many ways seemed to be working reasonably well. Um, and there were, you, know, you can look at the Soviet archives, and they're full of a relatively positive appraisals of what was going on in a number of Eastern European countries in terms of the uh, economic efficiency that uh, those mechanisms produced. But one of the interesting things that I, I realized was that by the 1980s, Eastern Europe was looking much less impressive as an economic model. So, for example, you had the crisis in Poland in the early 1980s. Hungary during the 1980s was in a deep recession. Um, and when you looked across Eastern Europe, suddenly this didn't look like a region that you'd want to be emulating if you were trying to spark growth in your own economy. Right. They look and saw countries actually accumulating a lot of foreign debt. Exactly. And, and I saw uh, several um, memos that were sent to the, the Central Committee and to Gorbachev himself looking at debt accumulation in Eastern Europe, and everyone realized that this was uh, dangerous not only in an economic sense, but also in a political sense, because this is one of the factors that ultimately led to uh, the downfalls of those governments in Eastern Europe. And and you you write about how they they're not and they're not just looking at Eastern Europe. They're also looking at the West. They're also looking at East Asia, particularly Korea and Japan. So in these other places, what did they what did they find and what did they make of the economic experience of uh, other parts of the world in relation to their own? When they looked at the West, it depends who specifically you're talking about. Um, certainly, there was a large group of um, academics, scholars, policymakers who, when they looked at the West, saw only things that they didn't like. So they saw the inequality. They um, they were kind of set against capitalism as an ideology, and so found little in that that the Soviet Union could learn from. But there was a second group, and these were people who were closer to Gorbachev, people who spoke English or other Western European languages, and so kind of had more access to the Western press, who realized that there were downsides in their view to the Western model, but also realized that the economic results were far more impressive than the Soviet Union had been able to provide. Um, and so for this group, too, there was an interesting kind of back and forth in their uh, views on the West. On the one hand, they wanted to learn from it. On the other hand, the, the political downsides seemed quite significant. But again, one of the interesting things that you have is that at the time that perestroika is being formulated in the early 1980s and into the mid-1980s when Gorbachev comes to power, the West is not looking nearly as impressive as it might have had a decade before. So, for example, Reagan and Thatcher are two political figures who highlight to Soviet eyes the downsides of Western capitalism, given the unemployment and income inequality that they were seen to represent. Right, because I think we need to remember that in the 1970s, there was a general downturn and stagnation of the, of the capitalist world and the capitalist economy in general. Exactly, exactly. And there was, you know, if you look at the research institutes in the, that were advising the Soviet government at the time, there are regular reports on discussions in the West of the crisis of capitalism and the end of economic growth. They, all they had to do was translate uh, Western writing at the time, and it seemed to confirm everything that many Soviet officials had long believed about the end of capitalism in the West. And, and what did they see when they looked at, say, Japan and South Korea? Well, if you think back to uh, political discourse in the United States and in Western Europe in the 1980s, you know, this was the decade of Japan as number one, as Ezra Vogel's famous book had it. And I was actually surprised, although I shouldn't have been surprised to see that book cited in Soviet footnotes on a number of very interesting occasions. And like, I think, a lot of Western analysts, um, Soviet 
uh, academics and people who are looking at uh, trends in the global economy realized that a number of Asian economies were not only growing very rapidly, although that was certainly impressive, but they had also appeared to have found a way to grow rapidly without social conflict. And so the, the clashes that you saw, for example, that accompanied Reagan and Thatcher uh, in terms of domestic politics weren't uh, nearly as present in Japan. And so that looked to some Soviet analysts as, as perhaps a, a way of providing rapid economic growth in a capitalist context, but with much more apparent political consent and social cohesion than Western countries had managed to provide. Now, they finally, at least in, in your narrative, they, they're really focused on China eventually, and they, they, they're fascinated with China. And there's a lot of intellectual output and understanding the, the reforms of Deng Xiaoping and, and Chinese economy. Um, but before we get to that, talk about how Soviet intellectuals and policymakers, how did they see China? How did they understand it from Mao's reign, the, from the communist revolution to uh, the reforms of Deng Xiaoping? Deng Xiaoping, excuse me. Well, it was really a roller coaster over a, a half century long period. There was a very close friendship during the early years after the revolution where Soviet officials, engineers, experts were going to China and helping them construct a socialist economy. But then after Stalin died and Khrushchev repudiated part of Stalin's legacy, uh, relations swung in the exact opposite direction uh, to the extent that the two countries were almost at war briefly uh, in the late 1960s. And during the, the 1970s and 80s, at a time when these ideas about economic reform were beginning to take shape in the Soviet Union, there were two different ways in which China figured um, in economic debates. One way was that China was an example of the dangers of leftist economics, so the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, were events that actually gave support to uh, groups in the Soviet Union that were much more skeptical of sort of Stalinist investment methods uh, in the USSR. But there was a second more interesting way, which is that under Brezhnev, it became more difficult to publicly criticize Stalin, but it was always acceptable to publicly criticize Mao Zedong in the Soviet Union. And so there were a number of very interesting Soviet intellectuals who had no real interest in China, but they wanted to criticize Stalin. And so they wrote pamphlet after pamphlet criticizing Mao Zedong. Um, and they were really about Stalin being a dictator, but they were in theory about Mao being a dictator. But one of the interesting results of that was that you had these liberal-minded intellectuals writing and writing and writing about China. And then Mao died in 1976, and they kept writing about China. But they were looking at China and realized that suddenly China looked very different than they thought it had looked just several years earlier. And so by the late 1970s, just a couple of years after Mao's death, you had a number of very influential sort of liberal-minded intellectuals who had realized that something very substantial had changed in China and that they were very impressed in the way that China was moving both in political terms and in economic terms. And what were some of those things that they were impressed with? What about the economic changes and the, and the political changes that they saw? On the political side, they, they saw sort of the equivalent of de-Stalinization, whereas in the late or in the mid-1970s when Mao was alive, of course, you couldn't critique Mao and there was still kind of the legacy of the Cultural Revolution going on. And by the end of the 1970s, the pendulum had swung back to a slightly more open environment where Deng Xiaoping had sort of rolled back the cult of personality and established a slightly more rules-based political system, not the rule of law, but certainly less, um, less personality-based than, than Mao's government had been. And they were certainly impressed with those reforms. But they were more interested, actually, on the economic side, where Deng Xiaoping and his allies immediately started pushing for a decollectivization of agriculture in the countryside, so breaking up the vast collective farms that had uh, dominated Chinese farming, and also 
or a policy of providing more incentives for industries. So rather than having uh, everything as controlled as possible from the center, creating a system of pseudo market incentives that were designed to boost production. And when they visited China and read about China and studied China, this group of Soviet thinkers realized that actually these policies seem to be having a pretty impressive result. You know, it's interesting that one of the things that that interest them was agriculture, because from from not my knowledge in Soviet economics and economists, there was a lot of thought even in the late Stalin period of thinking of ways to liberalize the collective farm system to to reform it in such a way so it had some sort of you know it actually functioned as a almost an, an independent collective farm and not under so much state tutelage. So, did they see something? Is that what what inspired them? To, to be attracted by what was going on in China in terms of the breaking up of the collective farms? Yeah, I think when you look at, at Soviet politics regarding farming, you see again a sort of pendulum uh, that swings back and forth from collectivization through the 1980s. And one of the things that I think these uh, intellectuals saw in China was a, a chance to use the Chinese example and the pretty impressive agricultural output growth that followed uh, China's changes to allow the Soviet pendulum to swing even further on one end under Gorbachev. So certainly there was a, a sense that they could already push a bit for um, not decollectivization, but a, a sort of liberalization of farming under Gorbachev. But by pointing to the Chinese example and saying, if we do this, we can get results like the Chinese have been receiving that allow them to open even wider uh, the possibilities for agricultural reform efforts. Now, Gorbachev becomes the head of the party and head of the country. And he is, as you said, attracted by this more liberalization of the economy. So what was he trying to achieve with perestroika? And more importantly, what were some of the limits he faced in terms of the various interest groups in, in the Soviet economy? Well, I think his goals with perestroika were actually, in an economic sense, relatively straightforward. Obviously, he had Glasnost, which is a program of political openness. Um, as well. But on the economic side, the main goal was to improve Soviet growth rates. He believed, and I think correctly, had that been achieved in the Soviet context, that would have allowed them to boost the production of consumer goods and raise um, average household living standards. And the question was, how, did you, how could you get to a point where the Soviet economy was growing again, not necessarily at the rate of the 1950s, but maybe the rate of the late 60s or early 70s, which was already far more impressive than the Soviet Union was doing in the mid-1980s. And so the question was, well, how do you get to that point? Uh, and Gorbachev and his advisors concluded that some sort of uh, market mechanism within a socialist political context was the way to do that. But the challenge that they faced was that the, from the very moment that they brought that idea up in the party, it faced pushback from groups that were threatened by those reforms. And one of the things that I was, I was interested to find, I expected to find to a certain extent, but I was surprised at how significant it really was, was the extent to which some of the groups that uh, benefited the most from inefficiency in the Soviet economy. So, for example, I talk about the military-industrial complex or the what I call the farm lobby, the agro-industrial complex, um, were also extraordinarily powerful in the party apparatus. And so the moment that Gorbachev tried to push reforms that would increase efficiency, these groups realized that these reforms would also threaten their own status and their own incomes, and so mobilized against them. And what role did Glasnost play in all this? Because, you know, most um, narratives of perestroika see these as in relationship to one another. Well, I think Glasnost has two different but related causes. W one cause is that Gorbachev was personally a believer in more political openness, uh, just as an ideal. 
and certainly many of his advisors were uh, of the same belief. They had um, suffered under Stalin, they'd suffered under Brezhnev, and they wanted a political system that was more open. But along with that, there was a, a second more political rationale, which was that if you wanted to push through economic reforms that were opposed by the majority of the party structure, you had to find some sort of way to mobilize other sources of political support and delegitimize those groups in the party that were opposing you. And opening up the press, for example, and providing for um, eventually free elections was an attempt by Gorbachev in part to find other sources of political support that would let him outmaneuver the military and outmaneuver uh, the agro-industrial complex in a way that would let him push his reform agenda through. So I think you have both kind of the ideological and the political interest uh, that are pushing Glasnost forward. And, and to what extent was that strategy effective? Was there an upsurge of, of particularly amongst the Soviet technocrat and intellectual class to to help him push back these um, group interests? You certainly saw that to a, a certain extent. Um, the, the challenge that Gorbachev faced was that the timing of his program didn't work out and that whatever benefits that were seen from the efficiency enhancing reforms didn't occur for a very long time, whereas the costs of his reforms and the political clashes that they generated came far sooner than uh, he thought they would or he hoped they would. So the certainly I think on the Glasnost side, you, you do see the delegitimation of um, the groups that are dominating the Communist Party over time. Certainly by 1990, 1991, the press is full of articles condemning uh, corruption in the party, but that doesn't have the political effect that's large enough to push through Gorbachev's agenda before the entire Soviet Union falls apart. Well, let's talk about some of those reforms. So what reforms were made in industry and agriculture? In both spheres, industry and agriculture, the goal was twofold. One was to provide more incentives for individual enterprises or individual people to act efficiently. So to pay them based on the amount of stuff that they produced and to make them pay uh, for the cost of the inputs in their production. And these were phased in slowly and perhaps not uh, in an optimal way, but the, the route behind these reforms is fairly sensible. The second part of each of these reforms was necessitated by the political deal that Gorbachev had to cut to get them through. And this was something that Gorbachev didn't want to do, but he felt like he had to do for this political deal making. And that was to increase the capital investment in agriculture and industry during this period. So it was sort of a political quid pro quo between Gorbachev and these groups. And the challenge that Gorbachev faced, and this was ultimately the key cause in my view of, of his failure, was that whatever benefits came from the efficiency enhancements that incentives provided were overtaken by the spiraling costs of these increases in capital investment. And so you had a massive budget deficit emerge by 1988, 89, uh, which proved totally unsustainable because Gorbachev wasn't able to raise the revenue needed uh, to close the deficit. One interesting attempt that uh, they tried to copy in the Soviet Union was based on China's special economic zone, um, which is actually really interesting um, because it's it's to me it's this attempt to carve out a separate space within the Soviet Union where different rules apply. Um, so what were these and how did they work out? In China, the government had created special economic zones in the late 1970s. The most famous one is in the city of Shenzhen, uh, just across the border from Hong Kong. And these were zones that were designed to create special, sort of more capitalist laws uh, to attract foreign investors, to take advantage of low wages in China and build factories. Um, and in the Chinese context, these had worked uh, very effectively at attracting foreign capital. 
Uh, and today, for example, Shenzhen is one of the largest and one of the wealthiest cities in China. And from the early 1980s, Soviet scholars were studying Shenzhen and other special economic zones. They were visiting them uh, and were curious as to whether they could be copied in the Soviet context. And they believe the answer was yes. Um, and by the late 1980s, you had a number of efforts underway to create a special economic zone in the Soviet Union, again, creating special legal regimes that are more favorable to foreign investors. And in my book, I examine uh, one of these efforts uh, near Vladivostok, which was, again, designed not only to create an environment for foreign capital, but it was not a coincidence. It was happening in the Asia-Pacific region, so trying to tap into this dynamism. But the problem that the Soviet Union faced um, was twofold. One was that the message from the top was that special economic zones make a lot of sense, but the mid-levels of the bureaucracy were far less impressed by them and even felt threatened by them uh, because the officials who got to write the rules on the provincial or the local level didn't want to have uh, rules dictated from the top. And this, the second issue was that by the time that these zones were set up, it was already the late 1980s, at which point the economy was already in free fall. Output was collapsing, inflation was, was beginning to accelerate. Um, and it was already too late, basically, to take advantage of whatever positive effects these zones might have. And so you get into kind of the, the tragic uh, situation where by the early 1990s, special economic zones have proliferated around Russia, where they're used not for any sort of manufacturing or a useful production, but for tax evasion. And so actually one of the, one of the uh, most well-known special economic zones was in the North Caucasus region of Russia in the early 1990s, where a number of big oligarch-owned businesses set up shop just in legal form so that they could route their, their profits to that province and not pay any taxes. And so it's kind of the sad denouement of, of the uh, Soviet special economic zone experiment. You know, it, it, I get the impression from hearing what you're saying is that a, one problem, and of course this is only understood in retrospect, but that the reforms came too late. That maybe if these would have happened, say, a decade before, things might have turned out different. What is your evaluation of that? Well, there's actually a lot, a lot of similarity between what Gorbachev tried to do and what Alexei Kasigin had tried to do when, when Brezhnev was in his early stages in power. Um, I think there's, there's something to be said for that argument, that had Brezhnev been more interested in Kasigin's efforts, Kasigin would have actually done more to make industries more efficient, less wasteful, uh, and that could have provided a, a more sustainable economic mechanism over time. Um, but certainly, the more that I dug into the the way that Soviet politics functioned in the late 1980s, it was really very hard to see how a uh, program of reforms could have gotten pushed through that would have both reduced waste and been acceptable to the groups that were in power that benefited the most from that waste. Now, the big question you're you're trying to answer, um, and this is the question that everyone asks is if Gorbachev would have taken a model similar to China in that sense is liberalize the economy, but keep hold on political power. Or even we hear sometimes the Pinochet model, uh, though that is more applied to the post-Soviet period. So could Gorbachev have followed a Chinese path? My conclusion in the end of the research was, was no. And there are a couple of reasons why. Um, one reason is that if you look at the political structure of China under Deng Xiaoping, uh, there's some key differences with what Gorbachev faced. So one key difference is the role of the party leader. So Deng Xiaoping was a military hero. He had fought in the Revolutionary War with Mao. And when he came to power, one of the first things he did was cut defense spending, which is something Gorbachev could never do. And he was able to do that because he had this personal charisma, which Gorbachev, though he was a popular leader, he had nothing uh, compared with Deng Xiaoping. And a second factor that's also important in the 
political structures of the two countries is the role of the party apparatus. So in the Soviet Union, the party was largely set against economic reform efforts because they benefited from the existing structure and they feared change. Whereas in China, the country had just emerged from the Cultural Revolution. It was a traumatic period for most of the party. And they saw that the only way was really up from their perspective. So Deng Xiaoping's changes were not threatening. They were an opportunity. So Deng was able to work through the party to implement changes, whereas Gorbachev always had to work around the party to implement changes. And that meant weakening the government at the very time when he most needed a government to actually push through reforms. This period, uh, Perestroika and Gorbachev remains in Russians' memory as a very difficult, it's a mistaken period. Some even suggest that this is the danger of when you're trying, what happens when you're trying to do massive reforms and you open up political space. So in, in considering your, your story about the Soviet attempts to, you know, take some lessons from the Chinese model and apply it to their own, what legacies can we uh, take from all of this for how we understand not only the 1980s, but the development of capitalism in Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well, there's an interesting conclusion with, I think, two parts. The first part would be that I buy this story that had Gorbachev not introduced perestroika, the Soviet Union could have persisted without any economic growth, but could have persisted the way it was for at least a decade. And after that, it gets hard to predict. But you certainly could have had stagnation persist over a fairly long period of time. So in some sense, the status quo in 1985 was sustainable, at least in the medium term. Um, so that's a story that, from the perspective of the Russian government today, which is looking at fairly low economic growth uh, for the next couple of years, looks pretty appealing, uh, that you can just kind of run things forward. And as long as you don't already have an economic crisis, you can uh, count on not necessarily facing anything getting far, far worse. Right, just kind of kick the can down the road. Exactly, exactly. And that's, I think, the the lesson that the uh, Kremlin is certainly adopting today. But I think there's a, a another story that's a lot more worrisome for for the Russian government today when it looks back in this period. And that is that if you if you don't tackle problems when they first emerge, they get bigger over time. And so this is looking back at, for example, Alexei Kasigin had some of those inefficiencies been uh, eliminated from the system in the 1960s. They wouldn't have been nearly as large as they had become by the 1980s. By the 1980s, they were too large politically to get rid of. And so that, I think, is a, a much more worrisome message for, for Russia today. There's a political consensus in Russia that you don't want to rock the boat for uh, political reasons. Uh, but one of the risks is that if you don't address issues that need to be addressed, then they just grow larger over time. And finally, you know, you point out that that Gaidar, for example, um, he's he's not playing a role here in uh, in doing reforms under Gorbachev, and then you know he he really comes onto the scene in the in the nineteen nineties. So what happens to the intellectual tradition that is looking and thinking about reforming the economy under the Soviet system? What happens to it once the Soviet system collapses? What, where do these people go? Do they change? And why do the young reformers of, say, Chubias and, and Gaidar all of a sudden bubble to the surface? It's a really interesting uh, story because around the 1991-1992 tra uh, transition, you get a big swing, whereas suddenly many of the economists who were Gorbachev's largest supporters, who were the supporters of, of what they called reform, 
1991, immediately become the greatest opponents of, of Gaidar and Yeltsin, who in turn described their own uh, proposals as reform. And certainly throughout the 1990s, you have uh, people saying, you know, look, what Gaidar is trying to do is making the same mistake that Gorbachev made, moving too rapidly towards capitalism or moving too aggressively or without taking account of the social consequences of that. My takeaway is slightly different, which is that it, it seems to me that both Gaidar's supporters and his critics have actually overestimated his importance in the sense that what independent Russia inherited in 1992 when it first began kind of picking up the reins of, of the Soviet government, which was no more, was basically the the result of of perestroika. It was the result of this clash that Gorbachev had undertaken with the party. And so you had this surge of inflation coupled with the collapse of the tax system, which combined in 1992, 93, 94, 95 uh, in a situation of hyperinflation and persistent budget deficits, which resulted in the collapse of the Soviet welfare state um, and unemployment and all, and all the kind of tragic consequences that we associate with the 1990s. It seems to me that we've too often pinned credit or blame, depending on your politics, to Yeltsin and Gaidar without realizing that the roots of many of these problems, at least to the mid-1990s, are 100% explainable by what happened before independent Russia was created. That these are really the last gasp of the Soviet economy rather than the first, you know, the first period of independent Russia. And that, you know, if, had Gaidar had a different political ideology, he would have had the same problems, i.e. a tax system that did not function, a uh, central bank. Uh, that was dominated by industrial interest groups. And I think it's often easy to read a lot into his ideas, and certainly he himself saw himself as a, an intellectual uh, who is a man of ideas. But the reality was I think there are structural factors here that are at least as important as political and ideological ones, if not, in my view, probably more important uh, in explaining what happened during the 1990s. So I, I really like to see 1998 is actually the, the end of the Soviet economy, uh, and the rest of the 1990s is sort of a transition period between the results of perestroika uh, and the, the new economy that I think emerges in the, in the 2000s. It's a nice reminder of um, what Stephen Kotkin put forward, and I think Armageddon averted that the 1990s should be more seen as the collapse of the Soviet system rather than the birth of a new Russia. I think there's a lot to that view. That was Chris Miller, the Associate Director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy at Yale University. He's the author of The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR, published by the University of North Carolina Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Meanwhile, in a control room at the back of the theater... Those brats won. I knew they would. Your plan is working, master. Of course! No plan of doom yeah. ever fails. We're talking about, yeah, we on fire. Yeah, I call the fire department. Let's go, yo, yo, yo. I don't know why people try to be loud when they're not. I got a lovely spot, so I'm flying now. Yo, I know you like that. You like that? Yeah, yeah. Here's an e-true Hollywood story for the pluck and it's right. How cats are stuck in purgatory for life. 
trying to fight the enemy without sight They in the dark swinging right to left Clinging to the little bit of light that's left you Can't escape the room, you can't escape the tomb You all wear a mask sometimes, I can't relate to doom To make the whole world earthquake, shake and move To be creative mood, I eat your whole plate of food You can't come close like an order of protection To distance myself from the pack was sort of my intention Slaughter anybody testing my calling, my profession Any more questions, Born I'm a lesson A demonstration and taking it all the way home While you stuck in first basin It's like having relations without the penetration Basically doing Nathan You a waste of space and time Always chasing mine, that's how you lost your place Yo, I don't know why people try to be alive When they not, I gotta blow up this spot So I fly that not We got that uncut flow to bring the cops out Pain run like your mic, you get knocked out I don't know why people try to be alive When they not About time you heard a rhyme flow with Doom and Quali to catch it with the combo. Muhammad Ali versus Potsy, cursing Yahtzee at the crap table, cursing caps at a Nazi rap label. Oops, a pot of hot tea spilt on a cable. Evaporator ice grill, read the seeds of Aesop Fable. Children, come sit, gather, face the rapid fire, the super slap shit out of liar. The end. Villain, the champ, tramp, flowing since they had him holding air at the Kaumba camp. He cleaned his mask with a shoe mitt and a little bit of her blue spit. She told him, you so stupid. Wiped it off, got dressed and left. Everybody.